0: Welcome
1: to the Extra-Environmentalist. Your opposable thumb means nothing.
0: This is what we want to be. We don't want to be Americans or Germans or English. We want to be extra environmentalists. Always feel, wherever you go, that you are a stranger. The outsider, the one looking in. This is the viewpoint that makes all places the same to you.
1: Hello and welcome to The Extra Environmentalist. I'm Seth Katz, along with my co-host Justin Ritchie. Hey Seth, we are recording live from my humble apartment here in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's not that humble, it's pretty spacious and amazing.
0: Spacious and amazing for a basement. So uh, what's new with you, Justin? You you've been pretty busy these few weeks. Yeah, been busy. Uh, you know, I, I started running a retreat center at my house for friends and family to come and experience the wonders of nature and biking. So that's been a lot of fun. Yeah, I was out in the woods of uh, where
1: Justin has recommended a, that I go on long jogs, and there's a small dog that attacked me and bit me. And that was sad. It actually punctured your skin. You were actually bleeding. I didn't expect that. I didn't expect the blood either. Yeah, yeah this is. Our first introduction that we've recorded in the same
0: room before. You may not have noticed, but all of our previous recordings were done via Skype while Seth was in North Carolina and I was in Vancouver. Today
1: we have brought the forces together into an introduction that will blow your mind. Definitely mind blowage. There's some mind blowage going on. Just pick up your mind, put it back in your head, and
0: get ready to listen to our podcast. So today we have an interview with Kathy McMahon of Peak Oil Blues. It's a blog that's dedicated to dealing with depression, psychological anxiety, and other issues which result from learning and beginning to understand the consequences of peak oil. Uh, What it means to be someone, up and coming youth, 18 to 30 years old, basically the, the age range that Seth and I are in dealing and understanding these
1: issues that's what we're doing today and this is a great episode if you're just getting started with the extra environmentalist and for your friends uh, send us around and let them hear what the goodness that we're spewing is all about yeah definitely some spewing goodness just like a tapped oil well so sit back and relax and enjoy the latest episode of the extra environmentalist
0: We're talking with the peak shrink, Kathy McMahon of the Peak Oil Blues Block, who is a uh, New England psychologist of over 20 years, living in Massachusetts, and teaching in three New England graduate schools as a senior adjunct faculty member. I saw on your website that you have 57 rare and heritage-breed hens and one rooster called Phil, so maybe we'll get a chance to talk about chickens a little later. But is there anything else you'd like to add to your bio?
2: I work for a social service agency that works with the poor. I primarily do supervision for the doctoral interns.
0: Excellent. So what is the problem of peak oil? Pretend I'm a family member that you care about, but I'm completely oblivious to the issue. I've never thought of it. I think the future is going to be more or less like the present. How would you approach me and, and explain the problem of peak oil to me?
2: Well, I mean, I first need to understand where you're coming from and the extent to which you're open to new ideas, because there's some people who just aren't. They're interested in talking. They're not interested in listening. And I, I think that's the first thing that people have to kind of wrap their head around, is that not everybody is really going to be interested in hearing bad news. And there's a lot of people, when you begin to talk about it, will give you a lot of really clear messages that they don't want you to keep talking. I think it's important uh, for us to be able to pay attention to those and to, to respect them. I guess the one thing that I would do is I would, I would talk about the fact that oil is a finite substance that we have so much of it in the ground, and we've known that for a long time. And at some point, like most things, it has it follows a bell curve, and I actually show them that in the air, what a bell curve is, and that when we first started tapping oil, it was like those gushers that you see on a lot of the old movies where the oil just came jumping out of the ground, and we were busy trying to catch it all, and... Uh, be able to collect it all together but over time all the easy stuff went away and we had to dig deeper and deeper you know we're at the point now where we have to go into you know pretty difficult places and the one thing that's very very difficult for a lot of people to understand is how absolutely and positively dependent we are on oil itself that most of the things that we use every day are made with oil, and if they're not made of oil, they're certainly made with oil. The The capacity to change over to, from oil to something else is a long and difficult process, and most people, and I'm not an expert on it, but most people that I've read have said that it's, um, it's going to take maybe 20 or 30 years before we can completely transition from one uh, energy source to another and so in the interim we're going to have uh, big problems and I would say to them and that sort of frankly scares me. I think the one thing I think is important that most people don't stress about peak oil is how it affects them personally and what emotions it brings up in them personally.
1: Going on that emotional feel, uh, I have a lot of friends who, when I talk about this stuff to them, and I tell them that that peak oil is an issue, they say I'm just being pessimistic. What are your views of pessimism versus optimism, and how does that classification fit into our understanding of peak oil?
2: You know, again, I think that we've got a love affair with almost delusional optimism in this country. I I talk about, you know, where I think it came from. I think that the field of psychology really got slammed with managed care. And as a result, I think a lot of psychologists were looking around to see what else they could do to generate income. And the field of positive psychology came up uh, and was really embraced by a lot of corporate interests who wanted philosophy that basically said that if you think on the bright side, then... Positive things will come to you. I think, again, you know, there's a book by uh, Barb Ehrenreich called uh, Bright Sided, and I think she's done a really good job of talking about that uh, American love affair with optimism. But I think that there's the difference between, you know, realistic optimism or a positive attitude, which is really kind of a trait that some people have like blue eyes or curly hair, you're born with it, and it lives with you throughout your life. Telling people to think on the bright side really doesn't help. If you don't tend to be a bright-sided thinker, then being told to think on the bright side actually makes you more depressed. What I did is, you know, because so many of my contributors and so many of my readers have talked about what it is like emotionally for them to talk about this stuff to other people and how frustrating it is for them to try and talk about it. I made up a playful DSM disorder that I called Panglossian disorder. I define it as the neurotic tendency towards extreme optimism in the face of likely cultural and planetary collapse. And I do think that that's that's what we face when we talk about this stuff. One of my contributors said, you know, just because it sucks so much doesn't mean that it isn't going to happen. And I do think that that's sometimes what we face, like the three monkeys, you know, hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. It gets down to, I think, oftentimes people want to believe that it's just really a matter of what people think and not what is reality and what i like to say is reality is what doesn't go away when you stop believing in it people particularly in your age group they have a choice they're either going to accept that they're looking into a very difficult reality and try and prepare for it as best they can spiritually emotionally intellectually you name it or they're just going to pretend that we live in the best of all possible worlds, like Pangloss, and go about sort of haplessly being uh, confused about what's going on around them. So I I think that really is, at this point, um, the options that people face.
0: If the problem of peak oil is so serious, why is the national discussion or even the global discussion not focusing on the, the severity of the problem at hand?
2: Well, I think that the easiest way to understand that is there are problems and then there are dilemmas. And a problem is defined as something that actually has a solution to it. And politicians and people in general love problems because it's very rewarding. Once you see a problem, you tackle it, you put your best minds behind it, and then you resolve it, and everybody applauds you for it. And especially when you're running for political office, that's a really good thing to say. You know, in my area, there were these problems, and I resolved them. But a dilemma is really different, and I like Woody Allen's definition of a dilemma when he says, and I'm quoting here, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness, and the other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. And it, and that's a really funny line, right? Yeah. Um, a dilemma offers a number of solutions or possibilities, but... None of those are really practically acceptable to anybody. You know, it's like me saying to you, Justin, would you like to be blinded or do you want your tongue cut off? I don't want either one of those. You know, give me another choice. You know, the Chinese define a dilemma as the to advance or to retreat becomes equally difficult. It's life between a rock and a hard place. No matter which way you go, you're going to face problems. I think what we're realizing, the more that you study and, and learn about peak oil, the more that you realize that it's not just peak oil that we're facing. Peak population, and it's peak soil, it's peak water, and it's peak economics, because right now this country is in a Great Depression. We don't talk about it, just like we didn't talk about it the last time we were in a Great Depression until we were all out of it, and then we looked back and said, wow, isn't that terrible? Remember that during that time it was not only the World War, but that we were a force for oil. You know, one of the reasons why it was we were so desirable to get into World War II is that we had so much oil, it was very easy when you had a superior energy force to, to do a lot of things, and that, and that's certainly is what happened.
3: Over the last 150 years, we've created a society that, that runs on oil. And it's inevitable that we would have done so, because it's just such incredibly inexpensive, convenient, energy-dense stuff. The problem, of course, is that oil is a non-renewable resource. So even when we first started using the stuff, we knew that eventually we'd run out.
4: At some point, since oil is a finite resource, you, you can't keep raising production. Usually, this is about the halfway point. When you've depleted half of the resource, it becomes harder and harder to raise production. It doesn't mean you run out, and a great deal of oil is still coming out of the ground. If we were to peak tomorrow, we'd still have 82.5 million barrels coming out of the ground every day. But it would be really hard to get 83.5 million barrels.
2: We know that the end of cheap oil is imminent, but we refuse to believe it
5: rate with which oil has been coming out of the ground has stagnated. It's stagnated at 84 million barrels of oil a day, which sounds like an incredible number, but that's what we use to power ourselves at today's rate of use. And as the world population continues to grow, and as prosperity presumably continues to grow, and people power up in their energy use, we get to a situation where there isn't any excess capacity to keep that powering going. And at some point, you end up with a flat supply and a growing demand and you have serious problems. And that's the nature of peak oil.
3: Discoveries of new oil peaked right around 1963-64. That was a long time ago. So we're not talking about a couple of years of, of bad luck in exploration. This is a long established trend. We've been discovering less oil with every passing year. It's at the point now where we're extracting and using about four or five barrels of oil for every one that we discover.
4: Now the oil industry responded in a number of ways, but one of the things it did was begin developing some amazing new technologies to help it find more oil faster. And despite this huge investment in technology and these great leaps forward, the the rates of discovery are still declining.
3: Country after country is reaching its own national all-time oil production peak and going into decline. The U.S. was one of the first to do it back in 1970, and now something like 30 or 33 countries are past their peak and so it's inevitable that within the very next few years we'll see the global peak in oil production. Nobody's ready for that. We've had three or four hundred years of fossil fuel, it's coming to an end.
5: Is is that an historic turning point? It's breathtaking. The whole world runs by oil. This is an oil culture. If historians look back from generations in the future and they look back at our period of time in history, they'll say, that's the oil people. We grow our food in petrochemical fertilizers and pesticides, oil. Our plastic Mm -hmm. and building materials are derived from petrochemicals. Our Mm -hmm. pharmaceutical products are primarily petrochemical based. Our clothes, Mm -hmm. most of them are synthetics made of petrochemicals. Our power, Mm -hmm. our heat, our transport, our light, this is the oil era.
4: We are not gonna run walmart walt disney world and the interstate highway system on solar or wind or hydrogen or coal or sin fuels made from coal or the products of the alberta tar sands or recycled french fried potato oil or any of the things that people are imagining Uh, you need this underlying oil economy to even fabricate the solar equipment, you know, to get the wires, to get the plastic films, to get get the aluminum frames, the silicon components. You need manufacturing procedures that take a lot of energy. It's it's not as though these things are free, And, and we're used to imagining that we get all the stuff because we've had, in the background of our lives, for our whole lives, we've had this oil economy that furnishes us with all this stuff.
3: All the structures that now exist our urban formations, our transportation systems, our means of getting food, globalization as an economic model, capitalism as an economic model, which depends upon constant expansion and growth and ever more resources. It cannot possibly continue to exist because they're all based on The root base of all of it is the existence of cheap energy. In order to avoid a deflationary depression, we have to have continual growth in the money supply, which has to be based on continual growth in economic activity, which must be based on the continual growth in available energy and raw materials. We've built an economy based on the idea that that it has to grow every year or else collapse. So soon the economy won't be able to grow and all signs are that we may be facing a kind of global economic collapse because of peak oil.
5: We simply must balance our demand for energy with our rapidly shrinking resources. By acting now we can control our future instead of letting the future control us.
1: With peak oil being a a very politically untenable subject to broach and politicians not really even wanting to discuss that dilemma what kind of politician and what kind of political figure needs to come to power what needs to happen so that those issues become the conversation and do you think that is even something that can happen in a time where peak oil is so bountiful will that happen in time
2: I think that most politicians look at the last Debbie Downer that we had in politics and that and that was Jimmy Carter anybody can google the energy speech by jimmy carter on the internet and can read it and, and watch him give it and he basically said all of the things that i'm saying now which is that oil is finite and that the world is burning a lot of it and is going to continue to burn a lot and we waste a lot if we don't do something we're going to have a lot of planetary degradation, and we're going to be in a tough spot. And I think that when people had a choice of choosing between him and and a cowboy, who basically promised us that, you know, it was going to be morning in America and we were going to be able to drive our big cars and waste our energy and and, and it would never end, the party would never end, I think people went for uh, Ronald Reagan. It's not imaginable that politicians aren't well aware of the kinds of issues that we're facing right now. Certainly, you know, the various military across the world are, are aware of it and are talking about it. Uh, and they can't wait around for uh, people to, politically, to do something about it. They're, they're doing something on their own about it. Uh, but I honestly think that you aren't going to be able to get a politician in office talking about this stuff unless you have a, a political groundswell I was on a lecture tour in the Pacific Northwest and up into Canada and I had an opportunity of speaking to many mayors and one of the things that they said was we can't get ahead of our constituents or else we'll be out of office and we're aware of peak We we know the kinds of problems that we're facing in the future but if we get too far ahead of people then they're just going to reject us and, and vote us right out of office. I, I think if you're thinking strategically about it, I think that you have to think first on working at a really local level with, the, with your neighbors and with your locality, your local folks, your local politicians, to be able to influence the decisions they make, uh, they're going to make that are going to directly influence you. But in terms of national politics, you know, I would say that it, it seems to me anyway to be kind of a futile gesture to expect that uh, anything on the national level is going to automatically uh, shift around just because we want it to.
0: So when someone learns about the severity of the situation of peak oil, because you can just say to someone, you know, there's, there's not a lot of oil left in the ground or simply that we're reaching the midway point and extracting the oil. Some people might just say, Oh, well, you know, there's still half of it left. Right. But once the severity of the lifestyle changes that would be necessary to deal with the situation, start sinking in and someone grasps the, the gravity of it. So what, what's a typical response or responses that people have?
2: And again, this is based on the research that I've done over the last four and a half years at, at Peak Oil Blues. People write me and they have a, a number of reactions that are really common. But the first one is shock. You know, I think it's just human nature when you hear kind of bad news like that to say it really can't be true. I mean, obviously it would be in the news. It'd be the first page of the news every morning. The second thing that they do is do an intensive amount of research to try to disprove that this is really happening and the the more technical and scientific background my readers have, my contributors have, the more likely they are to spend hours and days and weeks trying to research and trying to find the solution because you've got engineers who are paid to look at a problem and find a solution and they see peak oil in this way as a problem and they are kept up at night. A lot of them talk about, you know, not being able to sleep. Uh, Some of them write me at 3 in the morning and say, this is my third night of not being able to sleep. I can't concentrate on work. And I kept trying to find the answer to this problem, and I couldn't. And every path I went down to try to figure out how we could resolve it, I kept running into these brick walls because I, I, I began to realize that if we... You know, cont- you know I, I see these interconnected problems. I see how energy, for example, is related to the economy. That it's a cyclical pattern that when oil prices go up, uh, our economic activity drops. And when oil prices go down because there's no economic activity, well, then the ec- economic activity starts to pick up, but then oil prices rise again. Or, you know, we, we start to burn a lot of other fuels like coal and we end up uh, making a mess of the environment. So they see that anywhere that they are going to go, they're facing another problem that is equally as big or problematic as the one they're trying to solve. After that, a lot of folks, uh, and I don't know if the two of you have seen um, the movie The Matrix. I was at a university, and we were in this lecture hall, and it was dark and and it was monocolor and you know and I was saying well you know they they lived in this pot it looks a lot like this and and of course the university students were cracking up <laughs> and then what they do is through a, um... A, a technique they're able to go into this virtual world where everything looks normal and everybody who's living in it feels that it's normal and they're acting normal and there's nothing wrong Except that the folks that are from that pod realize that it's all illusory, uh, illusory and that it's, it's, it is not reality at all. So I think initially my contributors look at that matrix and they start to long for all of the benefits that, uh, an oil rich world has given them that they suddenly realize are not going to be there and that the world in 20 years is going to be dramatically, dramatically different than the world that they're currently living in. At first, they really grieve that loss and some of my my readers talk about this incredibly interesting phenomenon called nostalgia for the present. I'll explain it this way. Let's say that you're peak oil aware and you go into a supermarket and you see in front of you all of these um, vegetables and fruit and you see a stack of bananas there and you say to yourself ah bananas you know i remember when you could just walk into a store and you could pick up bananas and they were really cheap and you could just eat them every morning for breakfast and it wasn't a big deal you never even thought about the fact that they came thousands of miles away you just never thought of it and so they actually begin to long for a phenomenon that's right in front of them. And, and you can then see why people start to feel a little crazy, you know, because right. why, are they, why are they lamenting for something that they're standing in front of? And so I think that that nostalgia for the present does, I think, really interesting things to people. Another sort of common phenomenon is that people will say, I'm walking down the street of my city and I look at the businesses that are along the street, and then suddenly I see them all boarded up. And I look at a parking lot, and I suddenly see all the cars burned out. And so what I want to say about that is I think that that process happens at an earlier stage, and their reaction to that is grieving. And oftentimes the grief goes into depression or anger. Or all those kind of emotions that are, are natural when we're facing a sense of loss. But the interesting thing is, and I, and I think it just really does take about two years for people to go through this process. But I think after a while, they, most of my contributors start to say things like, I used to grieve for that stuff, but now I see that I see the cost in us having all of those things and the cost not just to um, the planet, let's say, but the cost to other people that are living on the planet, you know, uh, and they start to get things like that, you know, they make up, the the wealthy uh, Western uh, or industrial world makes up about 20% of the population, and yet we suck up 80% of the stuff. And so I think that as we kind of come to grips with what it truly means to uh, to look squarely at the dilemmas that we're facing. I think people start to change what it is that they're looking for, what it is that they really are wanting from their world. And I think at that point, any feelings of hopelessness or, or depression or just a sense of malaise begins to fade away, and they see instead a task ahead of them which is to figure out a way of living in an oil-depleted world uh, in a way that's going to be personally satisfying for them, and they start to see some of the advantages that can come from living in that scaled-down way.
4: See this ancient river bed see where all the follies land.
0: At least for me, I'm kind of on the other end of that two-year process where you know I've, I've grappled with severe consequences of living in an age of uh, petro-decline, and at least for me, what it's done is I've kind of taken on very large sense of gratitude for what we have now and even though I realize the the problems that it's engendered on the world and on future generations, I feel very fortunate to have experienced such material yeah. wealth on such a large yeah. scale. And I don't know, is that normal?
2: Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean how can you, you know, be staring at, you know, bananas and fruits from all over the world and know how much energy it took to get all that stuff there. And not be enormously grateful. I mean, I had an interview and, and, and some one of the p- people who were writing in criticized me and said I was against technology. I mean, I, that can't be farther from the truth. I, I rode an airplane, you know, tons and tons and tons of weight that flew in the sky at 600 miles an hour. How can you be anything but taken by that? And I think when you become peak oil aware, like you're saying, y- your jaw drops at the remarkable accomplishments that we've been able to do, and I think also that's part of the reason why it's so difficult to believe that it's not always going to be here, because it is so incredible. The technology that we've, we've had, we've been able to use, is so remarkable and, and wonderful that we start thinking, well, with technology, we can really just do anything. So I think, yeah, being grateful is, is an enormous and really useful way of, of coming to grips with this.
1: So a lot of people, a lot of my close friends and associates have the notion of a zombie apocalypse coming when the peak oil runs out. And going off into um, the woods and holding up with their shotguns and their gallon drums of gasoline. Do you think this is ridiculous? Is this a concept that humans naturally tend towards when they feel that a uh, shift in their way of life is coming? Is that something that's justified, or is that is that ridiculous?
2: Now, I've come to believe that Panglossian disorder can be on two ends of the extreme. You know, like like manic depression almost, where. You know, you can be ecstatic and energetic and happier than you can fall into a deep depression. I, I sort of think that, uh, when we're grappling with peak oil, we can go from complete denial to the other, in peak oil blues, I wrote an article called Three Types of Doomers in Fantasy Collapse. And, you know, one of the types of doomers has this, uh, this notion that, that suddenly the world will collapse. And when it does, they don't have to go to their crappy jobs anymore and sit in their stupid cubicles and do work that's meaningless and useless. And those are the two words I hear over and over about people's jobs, particularly 20-somethings jobs. It's meaningless and useless. And that if they ran up credit card debt, that the banks are going to disappear, and so they don't have to pay them. If they have a big mortgage, um, they don't have to pay that either. And that they're just going to kind of live this idyllic pastoral life of, you know, Similar to uh, um, James Howard Kunstler's book *World Made by Hand*, where you know you get to wake up when the sun is uh, high in the sky, and and you kind of uh, meander around, you go fishing, you you just sort of live in a world of of uh, pot and clover, and that's. In some ways, you know, there's an acknowledgement uh, in that world that there'll be, you know, terrible destruction and, and all that ahead of time. But ultimately, it, it'll be kind of a fun place to, to hang around. So I, I think that when you are talking about, you know, the, the Golden Hordes coming, I think that one of the things that we really don't look at is. The What I think are the even more frightening realities of peak oil, which is that if people are are going to come and take your stuff, it's because those people are the kids that you haven't given a summer job to in the last five years, or they're the ones that you always mocked and looked down upon because they were manual laborers or you know that you live in a in a culture and that was one of the things that i saw in my tour i would go to places that would have gated communities and they would think these folks that were living behind gated communities would think that they could hire a rent-a-cop at minimum wage with a pop gun in his back pocket and when the golden Hurt hordes hit that he would defend them against i mean which is the most absurd idea i've ever heard i mean on those gated communities, you might as well have a sign that says looting starts here. <laughs> because, you know, that's basically what's going to happen. You can't live in a safe world where you've got exceptional, uh, or a community, where you've got extraordinary wealth right alongside tremendous poverty. And think that when things get bad, that you're going to be all right because you've got your solar panel and you've got your your solar hot water and you've got your food storage or whatever. And so I think what people don't kind of get is that they make fun, and this drives me crazy, they often make fun, the media makes fun of survivalists, and they portray them as guys with big beards and shotguns that live up on the hills with um, their can of beans. I mean, I know survivalists, and they are not like that at all. I mean, the survivalists that I know are fully aware that there's no way that they can live in isolation from the destruction that they imagine is very likely to come down. Very often they're what I call gray men or what has been called gray men, which are guys that you work with, you know, guys that, neighbors that you have. uh, They look like everybody else. They never talk about this stuff. And yet they are preparing and they are aware that things are coming down and they're not going to be pleasant. People are comfortable talking about doomers with the beans and the beard and the the shotgun. But really, the survivalists that we really have to be concerned about, which no one ever talks about, are the ones that say, you know, the rest of the world is doomed, but I don't care because i got mine. You know, the ones that are, are, you know, uh, wealthy and think that somehow that they can escape the fate that is going to be happening all around them. And so I think that that is another side of the Panglossian uh, dilemma which Mm -hmm. is that on one side you've got complete denial and on the other side you've got complete disasterizing which is just going to happen in an instance and what people don't really get is that instead of that sort of ideal doomer scenario what we're really going to face is what a lot of us are facing right now which are sucky jobs that we are in, uh, have to work a lot harder at because our employer knows that we're desperate for a job and they start making ridiculous demands on us and they start cutting our pay and our benefits yet the bank is not lowering their interest rates and the bank is not telling us that we can skip credit card payments and so the real, I think, dilemmas and doom that we're facing gets ignored in favor of those extreme visions of, like, The Road, like the movie The Road... The, most, the, depressing stuff, the most depressing movie I've,
0: I've ever seen. I could only watch the first 30 minutes because they talked about how to commit suicide, like, five times in that 30 minutes.
2: And, you know, I think if you really wanted to be paranoid, right, if you really wanted to be paranoid, you could ask yourself, why is it that we're seeing those kinds of movies um, in in the popular media right now, and on the one hand, you could say, well, you know, filmmakers and such are really kind of getting into the pulse of of people's mentality. But on the other hand, you could say, when you walk out of a movie like that, you say, well, I mean, I'm just unemployed, you know, I'm just losing my house, so man, it's not that bad. That mm-hmm. it almost is a way of of sort of keeping in check. I think the legitimate rage that people have. Mm-hmm. um about what's going on economically in the country.
0: Right, that's that's a really good point. So, kind of switching gears a little bit. Both Seth and I being, you know, middle 20s, recently out of four-year university. I'm in grad school. He was working and now he's uh, exploring uh, another uh, career opportunity and so Being young adults, we're looking at the future that's uh, kind of in in line because of oil depletion and saying, how can we manage our our lives, um, our careers in the short run, and start making decisions around how we want to allocate our financial resources and and all of these things. So what advice can you offer us there?
2: Well, I think that um, one of the truisms in the people oil community is stay out of debt. And I know that that's a really difficult thing for most young people to do when they're motivated to get a college degree. But I I really can't imagine how it's going to get easier to service that debt as we continue to go into uh, the economic depression that we're in right now. So I I would think in terms of uh, doing whatever I needed to do to avoid what I've written about as, as the student loan fiasco, you know, the, the, uh, the mafia hitmen don't have the control over you that, that you do when you get into student loan debt. Right. Um, it's, it's horrendous, but in any case, so I would try to dodge that first uh, and pay as I go for, for an education. I I would look ultimately at what are the sorts of things that are going to be in demand in an oil depleted future, and I would focus on being able to develop skills in those areas regardless of what other kind of education I might be pursuing, you know, Um, and I think that's really, really important. I, I think when you are trying to decide where to live, your considerations have to go beyond the sorts of things that somebody, you know, uh, who uh, was born 50 years ago would be thinking of. You'd have to think of things like, where does the water supply come from? And how long is it going to be around? Uh, So a move to Phoenix might not be the best idea if you're planning to live someplace. So I can't
0: live in Las Vegas?
2: Well... Again, if you enjoy migration, yeah, go ahead, because I think what's going (laughs) to happen is when when the water is done and, uh, you know, I can't imagine that it's going to go on indefinitely, you're going to have to think about where else you want to live. So, you know, I would look at things like that, and I would look at what what this community looked like, you know, before 1850. What kind of transportation does it have in and out? You know, does it have ports? Does it have railroads? Because we may still have air flight in, in 50 years, but you probably won't be able to afford it and neither will I. So I would, I would look really, and I think the most important thing is I would look at the emotional ties that I have to other people in my world. And I would attempt to intensify those ties. Because ultimately, when push comes to shove, it's the, it's the quality and the connection that you have with people who care about you and who you care about that's going to be able to carry you through. So, if you've had, you know, falling outs with your family, I would really make a point instead of trying to educate them about peak oil if they're hostile to the idea, to really being able to reestablish a, an adult peer relationship with them and and a friendlier way of of being in the world with them. And and also, frankly, you know, I would um, encourage people, you know, in, as part of developing that sort of intensified bonds between people is to party more. One of the things that's, that, that's happened you know, since I was a, a young person was that um, in, right in the 1970s, people used to throw parties and have get-togethers 14 or 15 times a year. And now the figure is seven times a year. So that's a 45% drop in being able to get together and have good times together. And just be able to have fun and get to know each other and relax together. So, you know, I think that's important as well. to be part of a community, being able to have more realistic goals about what you're expecting from other people. I like to say people are annoying and because of fossil fuel we've, we've come to the opinion that we shouldn't have to be annoyed by other people because if we're annoyed, we can just find our designer friends in another part of the city or you know we can basically worship with people who think just like we do or, or whatever, you know. We're facing a world that is gonna become a lot more local and a lot more personal and a lot more one-on-one relationships between people. And so I think that any, you know, anything that a person in their mid to late twenties can do to learn how to establish better relationships between themselves and their friends or themselves and and um their family or you know themselves and the folks that they work around and work with I think it, is a really good idea.
0: So I'm not going to throw money in my 401k hit it r- rich on the stock market and buy a yacht and several vacation
3: homes.
2: You no know, again you don't you don't go to a podiatrist to um to to have your teeth cleaned and and I don't think you go to a psychologist to ask for financial advice. Um, <laughs> because that, that, that's not really what I, I do. But, you know, I think you need to really seriously look into what happened during the last Great Depression. You have to really understand the difference between an inflationary period and a deflationary period, and the order that those usually come in, and, and what it actually means, even if you're like me and and you don't really um, have a lot of background in economics I think uh, Nicole Foss Stone Lee from the automatic earth for for twelve dollars uh, you can get somebody who's a, a lot more educated talking about these issues uh, and and that's her, her site is the automatic earth and she has a a lecture where she goes into the difference between them. I think you need to become educated about that stuff.
0: Right. She, and she has to, an absolutely amazing site, and it's highly recommended.
2: And, and she's got, for $12, she, you can download as many times you want a lecture that she gave, which is just a phenomenal, a phenomenal lecture that explains this stuff. At least I got it uh, after listening to it for three or four times. I really understood the things that she's saying. And, in terms of economics, I think that was where I would uh, send people to really kind of get a better sense of, of what they should be doing with their money.
0: You, you touched on intensifying relationships with family and, and everything. What if we're looking at our local situation and our family happens to be clustered in maybe one state or you know several hundred mile radius and we're saying, this is not an area I want to be in as petro decline is occurring? you know, commute times are long, public transit's poor, very energy intensive agriculture, mostly confined animal feed operations or mega farms or whatever. It's it's a tough choice to say, you know, I need to move to an area that's perhaps more sustainable for the future. But then in doing so, I would move away from my family and the people who I could rely on when uh, times got tough. How yeah. How do you deal with that?
2: that That's what I call a dilemma. You've you, you got to look at that situation and you have to say, okay, how long is, is that particular environment going to last? For example, you know how long uh, if, I, if all my family lives in Phoenix, how long is the water going to last before Phoenix right. um, is not is going to be a ghost town? And if your estimation is that you know you've got 20 years there. Uh, You may choose to spend those 20 years intensifying bonds, you know, generating income, and being able to establish the kind of relationship that as things get worse, you can say to your family, we've got to make another plan, and you could be, you know, part of the leadership that makes a decision about where you go and when that happens. Alternatively, you know, you may say, well, you know, what I'm going to do is I'm going to move to this area where I think that everything is in, in, more in line with what I want, and I'm going to be able to create a place where my family can come when it hits them that they can't stay where they are anymore. So I don't think that there's just, you know, a sort of simple answer to that. I think a lot of people have to understand that. You know, relationships with people are extremely important. Yeah, there is a reality principle there where you can't live in a place that, you know, has no food, has no water, you know, and, but, but again, you've got to weigh that on an individual basis. And you've got to, you know, one of the things that I do is, is I, I do, um, one on one work with people. And, and most of the work that I do in, in the consult- consultation is, really helping people to get clear around their values. And I don't tell people what they, what they should do, but I spend a lot of time helping them to focus on right now what their goals are and how does that relate to the future. Because I think it, denial is our constant companion. A- and I know that even for me, even though I deal with this stuff you know, every day, um, I go into denial. I, I just basically say, this is impossible, none of this is going to really happen. Uh, and then I snap myself out of it again, so I think sometimes it's, it's really helpful to be able to talk for you to be able to talk to uh, to Seth to Seth be able to talk to you and really be able to talk out the pros and cons, the ups and downs and and to keep yourself you know sort of grounded in the, in the fact that yeah, this is all really this is all very real, uh, even though it's not on the evening news. This is all happening and it's not just something that's going to happen in the future this is something that's happening right now
1: you're right learning about these these issues and and actually accepting them into your worldview into your reality is something that has taken a few years and has taken some understanding of, of the concepts that you're talking about how do you take those ideas how do you take those concepts and bring bring that into a place where where you can move forward where you can cope with a post peak oil economy where you can cope with a diminished food supply and how you can cope with, with those issues, how can you move forward with that in, into a new place?
2: I think, again, what I really encourage, and, and particularly when people are feeling um, depressed, I mean, I, I've had reports before I started Peak Oil Blues of a number two two young men who killed themselves, uh, not together in separate incidents, and their suicide note said i don't have a future anyway i might as well die now and i think that that is really not it, it's not capturing really what is, is essential that people need to really really grapple with the changes that we're talking about are concrete um, the changes that we're talking about are skill-based and that you know being in your twenties is such a huge advantage because we're moving into a world Where physical manual labor is going to become increasingly important. Where, you know, the, the value of youth and enthusiasm and, and new ideas, fresh ideas are going to be absolutely essential to begin to think in new ways. My daughter is in her late twenties and one of the things that is happening for her is that communal, you know, living with a group of roommates, this is something that she has known ever since she's been on her own. And her ability to be able to think about how to pool resources when all of them have a mixed job. And in in pooling those resources with people that are really, that you're close to and that you've learned to trust, how do you then begin to think, for example, of eating within season? Which means that for, if you live in the east or in cold climates, you gotta think about how do I put up food for a winter not just for an apocalypse, but to be able to think about, well, I'll buy, you know, my, my fruits and vegetables when they're in season, and I'll do what my great grandparents or earlier ancestors did, which is to, uh, to take the food when it's fresh, to be able to preserve it in, in one way or another, and then to eat it all winter. And, and to be able to do that as a sort of pragmatic, practical thing that helps you to save money. How do I begin to get around the community I live in using a bicycle? Or in my area, because it's extremely hilly and I'm extremely out of shape, uh, I bought an electric bike that really rewards me when I pedal hard so that I am getting in shape for the point where, you know, I may not be able to buy a replacement battery. But now I've learned how to get around my community on a bike. And we know that the more bikes that are out there, the safer it is for bicyclists to ride. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I think we need to think pragmatically that way. Instead of globally, we need to think every single day when I wake up, what are the things that I'm currently doing where I really need to have fossil fuel as opposed to what are those things that I'm doing which just makes it easier for me to have it. It's just an easier way for me to live when my heat is up as opposed to, you know, really toughening up and and being able to use less, putting on a sweater, you know, um, doing more physical activity, keeping a cold house at night for economics, not just for environmental reasons or not just for peak oil reasons. So I, I think getting really down and dirty, getting really local, really seeing what the problems are in your particular community, really deciding to work with in your immediate community to do stuff that really has to get done.
0: All right, so I guess we'll go ahead and wrap up here. Um, So to to close out the interview, if you could just mention something about your Peak Oil Blues blog and then how uh, people can get in touch with you if they want to talk about these issues or some of the resources you have available.
2: Sure. My website is peakoilblues.com. My blog is www.peakoilblues.org, O-R-G slash blog. And for those who, you know, want to be able to talk with me one-on-one, I have a, a site called Feisty Life, which you can get to from my blog, right under the words, do you want to talk to a psychologist who gets it? And if you want to write to me, I really encourage people to write to me. I write back to everybody who sends me a story about their peak oil awareness and those kinds of things that they're they've been doing to get a grip on what's going on and I don't, you know, I don't charge for that. That's I think my public service to people to let everybody know that there are things that they can do. There are typical emotional reactions and when you read about other people, it start to feel more sane yourself. So you know, those are, those are some, uh, resources and, uh, I'm looking forward to hearing from, from your contributors. We get lots of contributors who've already written us who are in their twenties and, and hopefully they'll be an inspiration to your listeners as well.
0: All right. Well, thank you uh, so much for your time. And, uh, thank you so much for your, uh, your insight here into this very complex issue, especially for, uh, the age group that Seth and I are amongst. So really thanks. Hopefully we'll have the pleasure of having you back on sometime in the future. That wraps up our interview with Kathy. So, what do you think, Seth? Kathy is a very interesting person, and I think
1: that she brings a lot of value to the world and peak oil conversation in
0: general. I liked how she brought up the point that movies such as uh, *The Road*. It seems like the current cinematic obsession with zombie apocalypse movies help condition the response that people have when they. Th- look around and they're like, wow, things are bad. People are losing jobs. There's tent cities and valleys in California. There's hundreds, if not thousands, of people living underneath in the water tunnels in Las Vegas. It's pretty terrible. But then you see a movie like The Road, with roving bands of armed thugs that go around and uh, basically cannibalize any living human flesh. You think, yeah, it's not that bad yet. And so it's like, maybe my life isn't that bad. Or maybe there aren't thousands of screaming uh, mindless zombies running after me to consume me. Things aren't that bad. But in reality, things are very bad, very dire. And what's exciting about being young in this time period is that we have our whole lives ahead of us and we have a significant challenge. And perhaps more than any of the most recent generations, we have the ability to really take our individual talents as people and let them shine through. I liked when she said, all you have to do is party. I'm okay with that suggestion as well. I think we can make that happen. So
1: if you like this episode of The Extra Environmentalist, go to our website, extraenvironmentalist.com, and that has some www's before it. Or you can email us at podcast
0: at extraenvironmentalist.com. Also, don't forget we have a voicemail inbox and I think in a future episode we might start a poll question where you can call in and answer poll question. So that'll be exciting. So if you have suggestions for poll questions, send them our way. Also we have a Facebook page now, so go on there, like us. I think it's basically just Seth and me everyone out there in podcast land be
1: tuned for our next show, which will be coming out in the next 10 to 15 days. And don't
0: forget to check out the show notes for links to all of the music that we've used in the podcast. And a significant thanks to all the artists who put their music up on a daily basis on music blogs for me to listen to, download, and then give to Seth so he can incorporate into the podcast. Alright, so that uh, wraps it up for episode number six. We're definitely six more episodes further into this adventure than I ever thought we'd be a few months ago. So that's exciting. Heck yeah. Alright. Later.
3: peanuts and drinking billy's beer ain't no place i can have more fun than i can right here
0: also we have a facebook page now so go on there like us i think it's basically just seth and me who are who like us right now which is fine that's fine yeah. too. we have we have a, a, a great following
1: of maybe two or three, or four. Oh, I that think much. we have four. Yeah. Yeah, because your wife
0: yeah. your wife added us. <laughs> that's great. She did. <laughs> At least that's a bonus. I'm glad she chose to like us. Um, Half <laughs> <and laughs> past
5: nine is gone. The telephone rings, now it's for me. She so
3: said, where you been, dear? I've been eating Big Brother's peanuts and drinking Billy's beer.
5: Hi, this is Kevin, and this is for Seth and Justin. Just wanted to commend you on an amazing first five podcast episode. I specifically wanted to leave a comment about the Doug Lane and KMO exchange. I wanted to say that you did a great job facilitating that. And as a subscriber to both Diet Soap and Sea Realm, I found that to be extremely interesting. And I would have to say that it really enlightened me with the models of thought that we use, specifically in Doug Lane's case, his political ideologies, and how the structure of that really shapes the way that we think about our world. And we need to think about our world in a more comprehensive and enlightened and open way, in much the same way that Neil Kramer advocated during the transitional tour. But just wanted to let you know that and say that we really need to create unity and not division. We need to come together, educate ourselves, and move forward to create the world in which we hope to live in. Again, a great job on the podcast, and uh, keep the production quality high. I mean, you guys are doing a great job. Hope to catch you guys soon and listen to another great podcast. Talk to you later. Bye.